If you would please stand once more for the reading of the word. Today we'll be reading Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, we have those beautiful blue ones on the backs of each chair. Those are our gifts to you if you would like to take one of those home. Um, Today's scripture verse will be on page 497 of those blue Bibles. And as I said, we're reading Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Hear what the Lord has to say. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release from, for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. These are the words of God himself. Ordinarily at this point when the text has been read, I would, I would pause and pray for the service. But I want to add something to my prayer this morning, and I wanted to kind of give a brief explanation of that. Tyler and, and Lita, would you guys come up here and join me? And uh, Pastor Dave, if you would come up as well. Um, Tyler serves uh, our country in the uh, United States Air Force, and he uh, teaches ROTC at Tech. And part of his job responsibilities is that he goes away and, and does some intensive training with his, uh, what do you call them, cadets? Is that right? So his cadets. And, and um, he's going to be away from us for um, two months till August 2nd is when he returns. And, and we love Tyler. Amen. We love Lita. We love their kids, Avery and Sam. And so we wanted to send... Um, we wanted to send Tyler out with a blessing by praying over him, and um, and we want to encourage you as as uh, his, the body of of Christ here at Northridge that he is a part of to be praying for him while he's gone, be checking in on Lita, make sure she has everything she needs. Uh, you know, if if you have a minute, give Tyler a, a call and and make sure he knows that you're a text, or make sure that you know that he's. Thinking that we're thinking about him and praying for him. So, uh, would you guys just extend a hand um, up here towards Tyler as a kind of a symbolic gesture that we're with him in this, and we're going to get uh, Pastor Dave to pray, and then I'll pray and pray for the service as well. Father, we're so thankful for Tyler and Lita, their precious family. Um, Lord, they have been such a blessing to us here at Northridge. We're so thankful that in your providence you brought them to us and that they get to be a part of our family here. Lord, thank you for how they have served your church and continue to serve your church faithfully, um, how that's a priority to them and their family. And Lord, for the 
great example that they have been to all of us. Lord, we thank you for um, the gifts that you've given Tyler in performing his job, Lord, and we ask that as he is away for the next couple of months that you would, uh, we thank you that you'll go with him. He doesn't go alone, that you'll be with him. Lord, we ask that you would order each and every one of his steps, Lord. Um, we ask that you would bless him in all of his endeavors. Lord, keep him close to you. Um, I pray that you would encourage him while he's away from his family. I know that will be very difficult. Um, but encourage him, Lord. I pray that you would surround him uh, with believers who would also be able to encourage him and help build him up. Lord, I pray that the time away would be a time of spiritual growth for him. Father, and we pray for Lita and the kids. And Lord, we ask that you would be near to them and comfort them as Tyler's away. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would provide for every single need that they have, Lord. And, and we pray that as a church, we would really step up and minister to this family as they're apart. Lord, we ask your protection over them, your blessing over them in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. And God, I just pray that you would just um, allow um, Tyler to be a, a gospel influence on the people that he's leading. Lord, I pray that that um, just his faith in you would would shine forth, Lord, and and um, God, it would it would not only guide him, but it would be a light of of uh, inspiration to the people that are following him, Lord. And and uh, Lord, we pray that their lives will be influenced toward the gospel, towards the kingdom of God themselves. Um, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this message. We thank you for um, the gift of your word. We pray that you would give us hearing ears and receptive hearts. God, that you would um, uh, put a, a, a guard on my lips, on my tongue, on my mind, Lord, that I would uh, preach only what was written and nothing more and nothing less, Lord. I thank you for this congregation and the blessing that they are. And I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Tyler and Lita. Let's give them a hand as they go down. Um, <clears throat> well, last week, um, we finished chapter 14. Chapter 14 is the longest um, chapter in uh, the book of Mark, and I think we made record time in it, considering that we took five weeks in chapter 13. Um, but uh, And what we did in that chapter is we looked at Jesus' first trial. Jesus actually stood before three different leaders um, during his his trials. He stood, as we talked about last week, before Caiaphas. He went to before Pilate, which we'll talk about today. And then Luke records that Pilate actually sent him to Herod, who was the um, the puppet kind of uh, magistrate, puppet king of the Romans over the Jews. And w- last week we talked about in that first trial before the leaders of the Jews, which included the chief priests, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, who were kind of the ruling uh, body of the of the Jews in, at that time, and all of those people are referenced in verse one of our text today. That he calls it the whole council of the Jews. Now, as you'll recall, this was a sham trial in which they blatantly uh, tried to stir up false witnesses to to bring forth fabricated or twisted testimony in order to to make Jesus out to be a blasphemer. It was a very serious crime 
in ancient Israel, which is important to make sure we understand because now every time you turn on the TV, it seems someone is blaspheming God. Amen. And, and we, we, it kind of rolls off of our back, but back in ancient Israel, very serious crime still is a very serious crime. We've just, our hearts have grown cold, cold to it. Um, and so when, at the end of this trial, Caiaphas asked him very directly, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed or the son of God? And he answers, Jesus answers, doesn't blink, answers in the affirmative. Affirmative. He says, I am. And, and this sealed his fate. This was an un, uh, you know, you know an, an unacceptable response by Jesus in the, in the heart of the religious leaders. And so they condemned him to death. Chapter 15 begins with those same leaders leading Jesus off at daybreak to face Pilate. And Pilate was not a Jew, obviously. He was the Roman governor of the, over the province of Judea. Now, in taking him to Pilate, the Bible says that they bound him. Now, we know, because Jesus spoke not a word, he didn't lift a hand in his own defense, um, they've not, they've bound him for the journey, not because he ever posed a threat to their safety, but because they, they intentionally wanted to humiliate him. They wanted him to look like a criminal going through the streets of Jerusalem. And more importantly, when Pilate peered out and saw him approaching, they wanted him to look like a dangerous insurrectionist, a, a tremendous threat to the very power of Rome. And the reason that they were delivering him to the local representative, even though they had already uh, found him guilty of blasphemy and condemned him to death, is uh, that they they bring him to Pilate, the representative of the empire, because as an occupied nation, a nation uh, under the control of Rome, they have no authority to put a criminal to death. And they have no intention of seeing Jesus receive any lesser sentence. They didn't want him getting life in prison. They didn't want him to be scourged and released. This had been their stated goal throughout the book of Mark. Over and over, we see that the leaders are conspiring since chapter 3 to put him to death. And though it would be a tremendous historical understatement to say that the Jews had a rocky relationship with Pilate, his authorization would absolutely be required for them to fulfill their bloody plan of putting him to death. So at daybreak, they all marched down to his quarters to appeal to him. The historians, Josephus, who we talked about a lot in chapter 13, and another one, Philo, remember Pontius Pilate as a very harsh, a very stubborn, a very, uh, uh, you know, just... He was not an easy guy to get along with. He was a provocateur to the Jews. He was always kind of poking the bear, so to speak. And he'd served as governor for about seven years at this point, and he would serve for another three or so after these events until in, uh, finally his, his uh, you know, check came due and he's fired by the emperor uh, Caligula. Pilate had a history, as I said, of just kind of stirring the pot with the Jews over whom he held administrative authority. For example, he robbed the temple treasuries to build an aqueduct 
um, into Jerusalem uh, with no authority to do that whatsoever. He blasphemously brought uh, standards of Rome with images of Caesars right into the temple complex, which was an incredibly blasphemous thing to do in the eyes of the Jews. And there are other things. You could read through Josephus' account of the life of, of Pilate, and you could find all these terrible things that he did. But has been famously observed, politics makes for strange bedfellows. Amen? So the fulfillment of these ancient prophecies about Christ required a conspiracy between two government entities that have nothing but hatred for each other. And that's important to the story. Vitally important to the story. Why do I say that? If the Jews alone had had the sole authority to put Christ to death, and if they had proceeded with their plan, then it would be reasonably argued that they alone would stand guilty of Christ's murder. But because of their unholy alliance with Gentile Romans, the whole world now stands guilty of the most heinous crime in history. If I ask you how many races there are, you might say, well, there's, as the old song used to sing, there's red and yellow, black and white, there's all kinds of nationalities and stuff. But you got to understand, I've told you this before, in the Jewish mind, there are two types of people. There are Jews, the chosen people, and there are Gentiles uh, occupying the whole rest of the world, the rejected people. Chosen and rejected. And so when you have Jews putting Jesus to death, and and Roman power authorizing it, you now have the entire world standing guilty before Christ. And and this is part of Paul's argument in the first few chapters of Romans. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off because we're bragging about being the chosen people, that we talk about the law and all the things we've received? No, Paul says, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. And see, what you've got to understand about Pilate, he was not only out of favor with the Jews that he oversaw, but the powers that be in Rome were no fan of him either. He was not popular anywhere. And that's why he had been stationed in Judea. This was not a cushy job. Judea was considered to be the armpit of the earth by Roman standards. It was the worst place you could be assigned. It was the desert. It wasn't even near a seaport. There was nothing important that happened in Jerusalem. And it's where administrative careers, Judea was where administrative careers, like pilots, went to die. And this probably, you can imagine, made him bitter. He had been stuck in a dead-end job with no chance for advancement. He was at the bottom rung of the ladder and cursed to stay there. He would have much rather been in a place like Ephesus or Thessalonica, these cultural centers so important in the Roman Empire. But here he was. He's now banished to serve out his his days in the middle of the desert among these discontented, superstitious, and often rebelling Jews. And he could not care less about them. But now here they are, standing outside his quarters at the crack of dawn. (laughs) And they have a bee in their collective bonnet about some trivial matter upon which Pilate must rule. 
And so his regular quarters, you've got to understand, were in Caesarea. We remember we talked a lot about Caesarea in the early chapters of, uh, of, of the book of Mark. That's where Jesus did most of his ministry. Pilate had a huge complex there from which he ruled Judea. It was right there on the seashore. It was kind of nice. But he's come to Jerusalem to put down any potential insurrection that would happen during the feast because the city was jam-packed. And how he longed to just be home, either somewhere in Europe or uh, at his uh, complex by the sea, but he didn't want to be dealing with this. And Mark's abbreviated account of, of Jesus' trial, there's a lot more detail in Luke and John particularly, a little bit more in Matthew. In, in his abbreviated account, he starts with Pilate asking a similar direct question that Caiaphas had asked in the first trial with the Jews. Mark 12, or 15, 2, rather, he says, Are you the king of the Jews? See, Pilate is assessing the threat that Jesus, this man standing in front of him, who's already been through a terrible night, he's trying to assess the threat that he poses to the peace. Luke tells us that the priests had made the accusation to Pilate that Jesus was misleading the nation and forbidding people to pay tribute to Caesar. And then John records the Jews fantastically proclaiming, We have no king but Caesar. They're trying to intimidate Pilate to, to, you know, imply that if Pilate defends this man or stands behind him, that he is an enemy of Caesar's. But let me just make it clear to you, historically, the Jews were certainly not, you know, devoted to Caesar. They were opposed to Christ. They were opposed to his kingdom, the kingdom of God as Christ proclaimed it. They lusted after religious and political power as all unregenerate men do. And just as Jesus had done in response to Caiaphas' question, the leader of the Jews, in, in response to his direct question, remember he asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus responds, I am. Well, Jesus again answers unambiguously. He says, you have said so. Are you the Christ? You have said so. And this is kind of an English version of an aromatic phrase that basically means, you got it. Or, Pilate, congratulations, you have perceived correctly, I am the king of the Jews. In the early chapters of Mark, this is so important, because remember, think back to several months ago, in the early chapters of Mark, we heard Jesus repeatedly tell people that he healed, he told unclean spirits, he even told his own disciples not to reveal his true identity yet. But now... The time has come for Christ no longer to operate under a secret identity. If the whole world, as we have put forth, Jew and Gentile, is going to put the Son of God to death, they must know, they must deal with, they must wrestle with who he really is. They must consider the full weight and the guilt and the sin that goes along with them of their actions. It's at this point, the priests and scribes in Mark's account step in and they unload with their barrage of accusations about Jesus and it's based on their own 
blasphemy laws that they had established in the in the previous trial. They accused him of stirring up insurrection against their Roman overlords. But just as Jesus did at Caiaphas's house, Jesus refuses to speak a single word in his own defense. And this affected Pilate deeply. Why? How many hundreds of men had been on trial before Pilate that he had seen whimper and weep and plead and bargain for their lives? But this man did nothing of the sort. And Pilate, oh so cruel and oh so cold-hearted, was bothered by what he was witnessing. What is happening here before me? He even attempted to provoke a response from Christ. He pointed out the serious nature of the charges against him. He pointed out the roar of the crowd outside who were overwhelmingly demanding that he be publicly and shamefully crucified at once. But still, Jesus said nothing to persuade the governor just as it was prophesied about him. As a lamb before its shearers is silent, He spoke not a word, is what the Bible tells us. Verse 6, the story takes a dramatic, interesting turn when it enters its second act. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So Pilate had one more chance to silence the madness of the Jews and release Christ, in whom he had found nothing even remotely deserving of death. And under his discretion as the governor of the territory, he'd established a custom where he would release one political prisoner during the Jewish festival, just as a matter of diplomacy, as a matter of public relations. And it just so happened at this very time that he had a man locked up blatant insurrectionist, a murderer, the gospel tells us, and a robber, it tells us, in another place. An all-around bad guy, but a bad guy who has a very, very interesting name. According to early church writers, this this man's name wasn't just Barabbas. His name was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus is a transliteration. It is a common name back there, so that's not too impressive that he was named Jesus like Jesus Christ. Jesus was a common first name. It was a transliteration of Joshua, who was the, the great general who helped the, who brought the people into the promised land during the conquest of Canaan hundreds of years before. And so Barabbas was his last name, as we would understand it. And in the culture of that day, a Jew's family name was taken from his father's name. For example, my name would be Marcus Bar-Omer, if, that, if, if we were still following that tradition. 
Uh, and you'll remember uh, the, the the name Bar. It's it's it means son of. So, for example, when Jesus calls Peter Simon Bar Jonah, he's saying Simon, son of John. In their day, Jesus would have been known as Jesus or Yeshua Bar Joseph because the, it was understood that Joseph was his father. And Barabbas is an interesting name because it literally means very generically. Son of the Father. Remember, the, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God, we can cry out, Abba, Father, Bar Abba, Son of the Father. And perhaps this is because we don't have a first name for the Father. It's probably because he was an orphan, or worse yet, he was illegitimate, had no father that he could identify or recognize. We don't know. But when we understand... Jesus, Son of the Father, versus Jesus the Christ, it presents for us an interesting contrast that we would be unwise to ignore. So a violent, thieving criminal had been roaming Judea, causing trouble for the Romans, and he's known only to the public as Barabbas, Son of the Father. But Christ, by contrast had been now proclaiming for three years that he came from the Father. He came to show us the Father. He came to reconcile us to the Father. And that he was the true Son of the true Father. See the contrast there? Being involved in an insurrection against Rome, we can assume that at least among a a portion of the populace, that Barabbas was a hero, something of a Robin Hood, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. He was a savior of sorts who set out to save people from worldly oppressors. Jesus Christ was a true savior whose kingdom wasn't of this world, who had come to this very moment in history to save people from spiritual oppression, not in some temporal realm, but eternally. Barabbas believed that the ends justify the means, so he resorted to robbery and to murder to accomplish his goals. Barabbas clearly was guilty, but Christ through 14 chapters, only gave forgiveness. He only gave healing. He only gave wisdom. He only gave miracles. He took from no one. And now, at this moment, would sacrifice everything to bless everyone who would believe. He was innocent. But what I want you to get from this contrast between Barabbas And Jesus, the Christ, is that human nature doesn't ever change. And in our fallenness, in our sinfulness, in our depravity, we always demand the counterfeit Savior that aligns with our view of the world. There is not a single person in this room now that has not at one point or the other cried out for the counterfeit. There's not one person in this room at one point in your life, no matter where you are spiritually now, that did not cry out, give us Barabbas. 
Give me the one that will give me a, a temporal deliverance now. A one who will ignore the, the, the way things should work and let the ends justify the means. Whatever we think will save us and satisfy us becomes Barabbas. Whether it's money, whether it's success, whether it's a reputation, whether it's sex, whether it's power, whether it's respect. These are false Christs. They're false saviors that we only cry out to as we are rejecting the real king of glory. And it's certainly easy to read the story and criticize the Jews in the first century. But before we do, we have to ask ourselves, is there anything under any circumstances, if we're honest, that we would rather have than Jesus? I'll use a simple one. If if I had the capacity to say, you know, I will give you right now a billion dollars, one billion dollars, and all you have to do is renounce uh, Christ, reject his church, never show up here again, throw your Bible in the trash, how many of us would at least have to consider that for a minute? A billion dollars? Now, that's probably not going to happen. And the shameful thing for all of us is usually the offering is much, much, much Smaller. Once or twice a year, I think, all pastors, everyone that's ever lived, have their their illustrations or their examples that they return to over and over again. Guilty as charged. And once or twice a year, I remind you of the words of one of my favorite old hymns which we should really add into the rotation but (laughs) no pressure no pressure in front of everybody um and the words of this hymn are simply this some of you know it i'd rather have jesus than silver or gold i'd rather be his than have riches untold i'd rather have jesus than houses or lands i'd rather be led by his nail pierced hand I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And you know why that's my favorite hymn? Because if I'm honest with you, a lot of times in the moment of stress, anxiety, of lack or need, Barabbas is looking really, really good. He looks like a viable alternative to have what I want right now. So I have to sing out loudly, I'd... Rather have Jesus. I stir up my soul to remind myself of the gospel that saved me. Not the shiny, dangly things of this world that are trying to seduce me. But according in this story to God's holy decree, the envy of the priests and the scribes and the political ambitions of the people compelled them to cry out for the false for the counterfeit, and not only that, they demanded the immediate execution of Christ as well. And so as I said, 
two or three times already, the entire world stood united in guilt as the atoning Lamb of God was led away. Mark says in verse 12, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the King of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And one of the other Gospels tell us how in this moment, the Pilate tries to wash his hands of the Jewish guilt, but he did so to absolutely no avail. Both Jew and Gentile were stained with the blood guilt of the Son of God. The Jews demanded his life, but the Romans gave the verdict. The Romans carried out the execution, and no one is found in this story to be blameless. And Paul, as I said earlier, makes it very clear in the first few chapters of Romans. Now, i got to be honest with you. In reading the story over and over again in my life, sometimes it seems to me very strange The Pilate, who callously defied the Jews on so many occasions, relented, and he finally gave the order for execution. He never cared, historically, what the Jews thought. Why does he care now? Why didn't he just tell him to go home, release the man, leave him alone? He's under Roman protection now. What happened? Multiple times, he insisted that his examination uncovered no guilt whatsoever in Christ. There was none to be found. He's the son of God. He's perfect. And even at one point in the story, in Matthew, his wife comes out to him and she says, I have had a supernatural dream. Don't do anything to this man. So what was it? Well, Mark tells us in one little phrase, Mark tells us the Pilate's motivating desire was to satisfy the crowd. Let me tell you something. I know you've seen it, and you may have even experienced it. Public pressure can be a powerful thing. It can be a thing that will make you do the stupidest things just because a a majority is demanding it, just because a majority is crying out for it. It can cause us to toss Christ aside even when we have examined his life, when we've examined his claims and found him faultless. Now, as I've said earlier, I've said it again and again, we have to be extremely careful when we tried, when we tried to assign blame in reading these stories for the death of Christ. Historically, very anti-Semitic people have tried to pin the weight of this atrocity on the Jews alone. And that accusation, that misunderstanding of the text has created occasion for tremendous bloodshed. Others have portrayed the Romans as only bloodthirsty savages who were all too willing to murder him. Some would even narrow it down to Caiaphas and the scribes and their legalism and their envy. And others would blame Pilate for his apathy and his cowardice. But we can certainly blame all of the above as well as ourselves. 
and we can miss the entire point of this account. We can say, well, the Jews shouldn't have done it, the Romans shouldn't have done it, Caiaphas shouldn't have done it, um, Pilate shouldn't have done it, I, I and the rest of the world shouldn't have done it. But in so doing, we would miss the point entirely. Certainly, we're all guilty, certainly. But remember Peter's words. Everybody open your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 2. The occasion is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. The, the people began to proclaim in uh, language they did not previously know the, the, the good news of the kingdom of God. And everybody, as soon a crowd forms and they're listening, and Peter stands up and preaches the very first gospel message to these people. He, he, it's a beautiful message. He establishes it in history. He says that. But if you'll go all the way down to verse 22, you'll hear Peter's uh, appeal, his call, his call for repentance. And it says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, he said, everything Jesus did, he did publicly. uh, God was upon him. He did all this stuff. Then verse 23, This Jesus delivered up, watch this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Whoa, hold on. Where's Pilate? Where's the Jews? Where are you and I? No, 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 no. This was the definite plan. It wasn't a response to something that God was out of control of. It was the definite plan. It was according to his foreknowledge. And according to that definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed the hand, by the hands of lawless men, this man Jesus. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, at the end of day, all of those parties are guilty together. And, and, and those guilty parties were merely, though through their wickedness, fulfilling the foreknown plan of Almighty God. Man. So who's responsible? Well, God was, but he had a reason. See, God had determined to glorify his son before all ages and to do it by the cross. And this was his way of redemption for the salvation of all his people throughout all times, including, if you are a believer, you and I. And therefore, when things happen to us that seem like there's someone to blame, there's someone to to charge with injustice towards us, and certainly that's going to happen to you, certainly it has happened to you, certainly it's going to continue to happen to you, but when that happens, you can stand unshaken in the face of your sufferings. We can even stare death right in the eye. Because we live our lives for the singular purpose of being poured out to bring glory to God through the Son. And someday all of the scales are going to be put back in balance. And the Christ will be glorified forever and we will be glorified with him, the Bible tells us. And so we have nothing to fear from the pilots of the world. We have nothing to fear from the Caiaphases of the world. 
We have nothing to fear for our guilt in the, in the death of the Son of God because he has offered free and full forgiveness to everyone who will call on his name. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's all I need to know to rejoice in what God has done through Jesus. Amen? Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that, God, you actually used the sinful actions and the the corrupt intentions of men who thought they were controlling you and suppressing you. You used their, their wickedness, God. Though you were not the author of it, you used their wickedness to bring great glory to yourself. And now the Son who was crucified for our redemption, is raised for our glory, never to die again. And Lord, we have that promise that in him we too shall never die. And so God, we thank you for that. God, we trust you this morning. We acknowledge that you are the Lord of all of our good times, and you're the Lord of all of our hard times. And we trust you with every difficulty we're going through right now. We trust you to be Lord over those things. Lord, we we, um, trust you to stay the hand of the enemy before it becomes too much. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one that is reigning and ruling over our lives. And nothing can happen to us without passing through your hands first. We thank you that Jesus was never out of your care through his suffering and that you you raised him to life eternal. And now the Bible tells us that you have seated him at your right hand and given him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask our communion helpers to come forward to help us with the Lord's Supper. This is one of my favorite moments in our services. I love to share this with you the uh, and the the uh, divine uh, gift of grace that it represents to the church, the opportunity for us to renew the covenant. And this, in light of what has been preached, this is a great opportunity for you to say, Look over your life. Let the Holy Spirit shine the light in the darkest corners and say, wherever I have cried out for Barabbas, I reject him today. I say, give me Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. As we just sang, not my will, but yours be done. So I'm going to give you just a moment to reflect on that and and consider that uh, before the Lord, and then we'll we'll, uh, come and receive the elements in just a moment. But just take a moment, bow your heads. And just ask the Lord to search your hearts and look for places where uh, you may have been guilty of compromise or, or desiring other things beside the beauty of Christ. Paul writes for us in the book of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together.
Now let's give thanks for his infinite grace in his sacrifice. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for the body that was broken, for the blood that was spilled, because we know that it wasn't for your guilt. It wasn't for your transgressions, for you have none. We say with Pilate, we find no guilt in you, Lord. And Lord, we know that it was for our guilt, for our transgression, for our unbelief, for our rebellion, for our chasing after false saviors, that you have done this marvelous thing, that you have shed your blood, that you have had your body broken for us. And so, Lord, as we receive these elements, we receive them in faith that you are opening up a new outpouring of grace for us, a continuing outpouring of grace for us through the lives that we live, that we may live them unto your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you place your hands in a receiving position? And I want to just read this benediction over you, a very familiar one, I think. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.